The following message by Pastor Tim is brought to you by Together in Christ. Good morning. It's good to see all of you this morning, snowy morning. If you want to open with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we'll be finishing this chapter today. As you turn there, I do want to share a prayer request I just received. Somebody sent me a text. Lance Hawkins asked that we'd be praying for his grandfather. Many of you know his grandfather, Alan Powell. but He has COVID and is having a hard time breathing. So just ask that I would mention that to all of you, that you'd be praying for him. And so I trust that you'll be doing that, praying for Brother Alan. As I said, we're going to get through the rest of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to do a little bit of recap and then focus in on the last two verses there, verses 20 and 21, which really are extension of last week's verses that we looked at. But we've been trying to take this time this month to focus in on missions uh, in light of what we do normally. January, we do this and focus on missions. And so we've been trying to look at this passage in terms of that uh, as a church, but also as individual Christians and our, our role of, of what we do as Christians, of how we share the gospel with other people in our, in our daily life, really, and how we see that the love of the Lord is what grips us to do this and what constrains us and causes us, causes us to do that. And so when we started in this section, it really is hard not to look back to chapters four, the beginning of, of chapter five. I don't want to do that this morning. But when you get to verse 11, Look at it with me. It says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is also known to your conscience. You remember one of the reasons Paul's writing this to, these, to this church is because there was doubt of his apostleship. There was doubt of how truthful he is, that if he really was a, a man of God, false teachers had come in after Paul and were saying, look, he's going through all these struggles uh, we see that there's no way that God is directing this guy. Wouldn't God bless this guy? Wouldn't he lift him up? All these different things, right, is what was being taught about Paul. And so Paul's trying to lead this church to show them that he is a man of God, that he has been called to go to the Gentiles, to go to the nations, to share with them the good news of Christ, and that his suffering isn't, doesn't show uh, that it's false. It actually shows that it's true, that it's a real, that, that he's real, and called by God in this. And so when he gets to this verse in verse 11, one of the things that he, he says is he, he mentions how the fear of the Lord, because of the fear of the Lord, I persuade others. And if you remember, the verses preceding that, before that, talked about judgment and how the judgment of the Lord and this fear of that helps Paul actually in being faithful, one in his own life maybe, but also could potentially be in seeing others, knowing that they will face judgment one day. And that God has called him now to, to share the good news with them, that they can be free of that judgment, that they can actually be called righteous in God's eyes. And so this fear helps Paul go and to persuade others. But then he continues on. Look at verses 12 through 15. It says, we are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. This really is a pivotal part of this passage 
Because we see that, yes, fear helped Paul persuade others, but really what constrained Paul, what, what really caused Paul to get up every morning and to do the things that he was doing for the Lord was the love of the Lord, that he knows the, the love that Christ had for him. And this was his motivation. I think this is an important point to make because uh, I think of it then in terms of parenting, honestly, because some of us maybe in our parenting strategy, we like verse 11. It is the fear that's going to persuade our children to obey. When really the better tactic is verse 14. It is love that should cause them to obey. Maybe your love for them, understanding the love of the Father that will help persuade them. But it's like that in our walks then as well as believers. If we believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he's done what he says he was going to do, if he did all of that, and he did that for me, right, so that I can be saved by his grace, then that love that he has had, that he has for me is what should then motivate my life so that then I become what verse 15 says, that I, I no longer live for myself anymore. I live for him. If he gave everything for me, I should then give everything for him. And it's his love that persuades me to do this. It's his love that then keeps me focused on God's word, on the truths of his word. See, when we start to fall out of that, I think when we, as Christians, when we start to see in our life or maybe we're struggling with that, what happens is we let the love of the world start to creep in. And so then we feel ourselves tossed to and fro with the waves of the virtues of this world or the morality of this world or whatever it may be. And, and we should notice that as believers. We should notice that as Christians to say, maybe I'm getting off track here. Because if it's the love of Christ that compels me and constrains me, I'm a one-track mind. I'm focused on his word and the things of his word. And I want to do that for him. And we're not carried to and fro by the, by the things of this world that knock us back and forth. But instead, I'm on that solid rock of Christ. I mean, it's his love, again, that allows me to do the things that I do, that causes me not to worry about myself and the things of myself, but to focus on the things that he would desire. That's a hard thing, I think, for all of us. I think if we all were honest, that's, that is the struggle as a Christian, to keep with that, to be faithful to that. And that's why the Lord has given us these different disciplines that we can focus on that help us in our walk with him, to stay focused on the love that he has for us. Look at verse 16. Paul would go on to say, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. So as this love of the Lord constrains us, and now I don't live for myself, but I live for him, one of the things that it changes right off the bat, at least it needs to, is the way we view others, in fact, the way we view the world, the way we view everything. Everything needs to be seen through the lens of the gospel, if I can say it that way. Everything that happens, everything that we do in our life needs to be filtered through the gospel. And we need to be asking, you know, am I doing this how I should as a Christian? Am I treating this person today how I should as a Christian? Is this how the Lord would want me to treat them? Am I praying in ways that I should be praying? Right? Am, I, am I living in the way that I should be living? And our, our vision all of a sudden gets off of the fleshly vision and we start to see spiritually. 
We start to view everything spiritually. And that really is a game changer. If you walk into work tomorrow morning and you think of everybody that you work with as a, as a spiritual person who either has been saved by the grace of God or who has not been saved by the grace of God, that should impact how you view them, how you treat them, how you respond to them. So your boss who you hate, maybe, which maybe you shouldn't hate, maybe that's a bad word, but your boss who you really dislike, always on your case. But when you see that boss and you see them as, I don't think they're a believer. And if they would die today, I think they're going to be in hell. I don't, I don't think they're, they're, they're going to spend eternity with Christ. Now, fleshly eyes would say, good, see ya. But we don't, as a believer, know. We don't want that for anybody. And so we start to see our boss, hopefully in a different light, somebody I should pray for, as somebody actually that I should work hard for so that they would see that I care about them. I even care about their job. They might not show too much care for me, but I care about them. And why do I care about them? I care about them because I hope that God will open the door and give me an opportunity to share the good news of the gospel to them. And who knows, maybe God will open their eyes to the truth and save their soul. See, that has an impact then on how we handle every situation with that boss. And that's just one example. You can think of all the relationships in your life that really are changed as a result of the work that Christ has done in your heart and the love that constrains you of then how you go forth and love people as well. Truthfully, and you'll love them also sacrificially at times. Paul goes on, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is, this is one of the better verses, I think, in this section, the promise that is here. If you're here this morning and you're trying to test out this whole God thing or this whole church thing, or you're, you're curious about it, this is probably the best news that I feel I could give you this morning. The, the promise of scripture, the promise of, the, of Christ and what he has done is that Jesus can make you a new creation so that your past, whatever it's filled with, and listen, I could go into the jails and preach the same thing and the truth remains for them. Murderers, whatever it might be, I could stand in the jail and say the exact same thing to them. Listen, your past will be made completely new this moment on if you would, by faith, believe in Christ for the remission of your sins. That promise is for you. And so if you're sitting here this morning, you think, yeah, but my past is really bad. Listen, it's not bad enough. There is no too bad where you would say, yeah, but Pastor Tim, there has to be a footnote that puts us down to say, well, except for me. It's not there. The Bible promises us that we can be a new creation. The old things are past. Behold, the, the new has come. And so when God reaches out and grabs you and saves you, he makes you completely new. Now, the world might not see you that way. Your spouse might not see you that way. Your children might not view you that way. They might remember all the bad things you have done. But I promise you this, God does not view you that way anymore once he saved you by his grace. You're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And listen, there is no other faith, no other religion that can give you that. There's no other God in this world who promises that. 
All the gods of this world, all these things tell you that you have to make yourself new. You have to prove yourself worthy of this. And what the Bible teaches is Jesus has proven himself worthy in your place. You can't do that, but he has done that for you. If by faith you will receive this truth. Paul goes on as if this isn't enough. Verse 18 and 19. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. This is what we looked at last week. The fact that God has reconciled us through Christ. We can be reconciled to God. You have to remember, because of the sin in our life, because of the sin in your life, you have a problem with God. In fact, the Bible says you are an enemy of God. It's not anything that God has done. He's perfect in all things. It's, it's you. In your sin, you continue to rebel against God. You continue to say that you know what is best. And so thus you have wronged God. God hasn't wronged you. You've wronged God. The amazing thing about this story of reconciliation is that you didn't make your way to solve that problem with God. God did it for you. The Bible tells us that God would send his son to die in your place, which we're going to talk more about this morning. He came and reached out for you. And so through this reconciliation, what God has done is he allowed us to be friends with him. In fact, scripture tells us we are family of God. Though we were once enemies of his, He has brought us in and adopted us into his family to now where we are heirs to the throne with Jesus himself. And so we are families of God because of this reconciliation. But then in verse 19, it says, the Lord has given us the ministry of reconciliation. And so now what we see is God allows us to extend this call of reconciliation to others. He's given us this privilege to be able to let other people know That reconciliation is available through the work of God, through his son, Jesus. And we have this privilege. And what we're going to see this morning in verses 20 and 21 is Paul talk about this uh, in an analogy, I think, that is very helpful. So look at verses 20 and 21. It says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We're going to look at this ambassador thing, but I want to remind us of something. In your Bible, if you take your Bible and turn to Psalm 2, Psalm 2, I preached a sermon on this not too long ago, maybe last summer. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one there in the pew in front of you. You can take that one. Psalm 2, I think, is important for us this morning so that we remember something. Psalm 2 says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, 
saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. I read that this morning because I do want us to be reminded that it is not man who seeks after God. It is God who seeks after man. And that's a, that's a very important distinction there. And this goes back all the way to Adam and Eve. Because if you remember in the garden, when Adam and Eve sinned, right? They, they sinned. The, the serpent, they talked with the serpent, and they took of the fruit, and they consumed of that fruit. What was the first thing that Adam and Eve went and did? They hid from God. You would think that if they had this loving relationship with the Lord, even in, the, even in some, uh, a situation where they sinned or did something wrong, that they might, you would think they might go to him, right? After that, and they realize their guilt and they realize their shame, that they might go to God and say, hey, we just did this and it messed us up. We're sorry, could you help us out? But they didn't do that, did they? No, they hid. And so then when God comes in the evening, to walk with them and to commune with them like he had been doing, he calls out to them, where are you? Where are you at? And so we get this picture already in Genesis, very early on. Where are you? God seeking the lost. God seeking the ones who have guilt and who have shame. And that is still the case today. It remains the same. You go out into the world, you can probably just search within your own heart if you're honest, and we will see people running from God. There is nobody that seems to be seeking after him, trying to find him. In fact, what I often find is people who are trying to find him, quote unquote, it's normally for selfish reasons. It's for what God can do for them, not for what God has done for them or just for the fact that he is God. They're looking for him for some reason for themselves, for self-betterment or for whatever it may be. Those are the people I often see who are, quote unquote, seeking for God. But then we also have on the flip side of that, people who just straight out are running from God and want nothing to do with him. They would say, I'm an enemy of God. I don't want to have anything to do with him. And they have their reasons for that. And so they sit there and they try to fight against him over and over and over again. So when we look at Psalm 2, even though it was written a long time ago, it's still very relevant today. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? That is a question. Well, it's because of sin. And sin causes us to want to run from God, not to seek God. But God in his great love for his creation and the amazing thing about this story is that God is there seeking those who are lost. And Paul talks about it in a way in verse 20 and 21 with the word ambassador. It's amazing to think that what God has done is when he saves a person, they become ambassadors for him in this land of his enemies. In a land filled with the enemies of God, 
God has put ambassadors in these lands. Why? To let people know peace is available. Peace is there for you and God. Just like with Adam and Eve, peace is available. It's going to take something big, death. But peace is available to you, Adam and Eve, and it's still available today. So when we look at this word ambassador, I guess we should think about it and ask, what is an ambassador? I don't know how much you follow this kind of stuff, but an ambassador today, at least in our country, is chosen by the president. Whoever the president is can choose the ambassador and he sends that person, whoever it may be, to represent our country in a foreign land. And so that is their job. That is their task. They go and represent the United States of America wherever it may be as ambassador of whatever. Put whatever country down you want. And so it is then the job of this ambassador and one of their purposes in the country is to help with peace and relations between the United States of America and whatever that country may be. That's, that's what they are there for. And that is part of their job. It is a great position of honor. I can't imagine how good that would feel for a president to say, I've chosen you to represent us here. And it don't even matter where it is. That's an honor to be chosen to do something like that. Along with this call, though, there is some authority. As an ambassador, if I was an ambassador somewhere in one of these countries, I've been given authority, that means, by the president to speak on behalf of our country when it comes to things. That would be my job, that would be my duty, and it would be a high honor to be able to do that. Another thing that is interesting, and you can think about this in terms of being a Christian, if, if a crime is committed against me as ambassador somewhere, it's actually not a crime against me, it's a crime against the country, not just me. But if you do something to me as ambassador, you actually are sinning against the United States of America if I've been chosen as an ambassador somewhere. All right, so that's just a real quick breakdown of what an ambassador does and what their role is when chosen by the president to do that. So what is Paul talking about then for us as ambassadors for Christ? Well, I think there's some similarities that we can see. First of all, as an ambassador for Christ, we have been chosen by God, just like the president would choose an ambassador. We have been chosen by God. Ephesians 1.4, it says, even as he chose us, in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. And so if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, if you've been saved by his grace and you know this, you have been chosen by God to then be an ambassador here. Now again, I want to state this. I've stated this every single time and maybe it'll get on your nerves. I'm saying it again. We have to remember that Paul, number one, is writing about himself and he's saying how he is an ambassador here. And so some would say he's talking about just apostles. Some would say that he's talking about ministers in general. Uh, some would say he's talking about all Christians. I think the implication here is for all Christians, whether the specific task would be for ministers or apostles. Still, the implication here, I think, is for all of us that we could say you are an ambassador here in this land, and you have been chosen by God. And so we are called then, as believers, as ambassadors, to represent Christ here on this earth. Look again in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Notice this. This is a big deal. 
God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This is our task. As ambassadors for Christ, sent to this foreign land, we are called to ask of people, be reconciled to God. So just like an ambassador would go to a country and try to establish peace and try to establish good relations, this is what we do for our family members. This is what we do for coworkers. This is what we do in our sphere of influence. We let people know peace has been made available for you by God. Be reconciled to God. That is our task. That is our message. And that is our only message. We can't add to it. We cannot take away from it. We've not been commissioned to do that. We cannot give other avenues to be reconciled to God. We cannot make promises that God has not made. What we do is we say, be reconciled to God. There is peace available by God. And now as a Christian, I want to, you to understand that there needs to be a good balance in our life, I think, of feeling the weight of this task versus feeling the freedom that God has given us in Christ. There needs to be a healthy balance because I do think it can go one of two ways. And maybe some of you struggle with this. Some of you carry the weight of sin of all the people in your life who are not Christians. And that's not your job. That's not your task. That's not your duty. You cannot save them. You can't even convince them to be saved. You need to share with them the truth. Share with them the gospel. But you cannot carry that weight of their salvation on your shoulders. Parents, you can't carry the weight of your children's salvation on your shoulders. That is a work that only God can do in their life. And all God has told you to do is to be faithful in telling them reconciliation is available. God has made a way for peace and it's through Christ. So don't carry that weight. But on the flip side, don't just sit there and not tell anybody about the peace that God has made. Don't say, oh, I'm just gonna release that weight and I don't have to worry about it anymore. That's not true. We have that awesome privilege as ambassadors for Christ to be able to share this good news with others and we should be faithful in doing it as the love of Christ constrains us and compels us to do it. So looking at verse 21, Paul says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This really is, uh, I think, verse 21 here is one of the grandest verses in all of scripture. Paul has just went through all of this talking and what he does in one verse is he sums up the gospel very clearly and he gives us the message that we are supposed to go and share. The message that we are supposed to go and say and to live out. He does it very clear and let's break it down into three sections. Number one, he made him to be sin that knew no sin. Obviously, he's speaking of Jesus here and he's speaking of the perfection of Christ Think about this. Jesus lived 33 years, right? He lived for 33 years, and he never one time sinned. There was no, no sin in his thoughts, no th- sin 
in his actions ever. Completely, perfectly sinless. He lived the perfect life. Yet, God the Father would send his son to the cross for sin. That's not fair. That's not how it should be done if everything is played out and just. But yet, that's what God has done. He sent his perfect son to the cross to no sin. That's what it says. He made him who knew no sin. Right? I want to read a quote for you. This is one of the commentaries I've been reading. The guy's last name is Garland. It says, Now the astounding thing is that this, this sinless one God made sin for us. Sin is to be taken in the same comprehensive sense. God did not make him a sinner. God did less and he did more. God left Jesus as sinless as he was. The idea of God making anyone a sinner to say nothing of his own son is unthinkable. God did something else entirely. He laid on him the iniquity of us all, as Isaiah 53, 6 says, so that he bore our sins in his own body on the tree. That's 1 Peter 2, 24. So that he, made, he was made a curse for us, Galatians chapter 3. So that he died for all, Galatians chapter 3 again. God made Christ sin by charging all that is sin in us against him, by letting him bear all this burden with all its guilt and penalty in our stead in order to deliver us. It sounds incredible that God should have done this with his own sinless son. Because it is so astounding, Paul puts it in this astounding way. But in fact, God did just this. I don't know how often we think about that as Christians, but it's something we should dwell on often. The, the sinless, spotless lamb has taken your place. I really think we've been very separated from death as a society. We, we, really, we really push it away. You know, we, don't, we don't have to kill the food we eat, most of us anymore. Uh, we don't even have to deal with a loved one when they pass away if we don't want to. If, we, if it's just too hard on us, we have people that we can pay and they just deal with it. And it wasn't too long ago that it just wasn't like that. And for many of you, if you had to take your household pet and they had to pay your price for your sin, I would dare say, you would say, I'm not willing to do that. I love this thing too much. It doesn't deserve that. It shouldn't be put on this dog because I did bad. No. And so we would struggle with that idea. Uh, we would struggle with that reality if that was the case. But yet a lot of us seem to sidestep at a times that what has happened, in fact, is God put his sinless son on the cross to die in your stead and in your place. Why? So that peace could be made available. Because it was something that you couldn't handle. It was something that you couldn't do. And so God dealt with it on his own through his son. And so Jesus bore all the wrath, all the guilt, all the shame. It's a very personal thing. In the Old Testament, you know, they would take a goat or a sheep. And you, you touch that sheep. And then you'd kill that sheep. Why? 
Because you sinned. Not because it sinned, but because you sinned. And so it was very personal. It was a very real thing that you had to watch and that you had to be a part of. Now, we're very separated from that time. But it's a very real thing. That as a Christian, Jesus died on that cross in your place. And God put that on him and not on you. And so when we see this, those verse continues on. It says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Why? So that in him, we have to pause there. We've already talked about this in this series, the importance of being in him. But this is the key to all of this. Is it's only done through him. Nowhere else, no other way. And to a lot of people today, this is the struggle. This is what doesn't make sense. You're telling me that the way I can be reconciled to God is I have to trust in a guy that you're telling me lived 2,000 some years ago, died on a cross, and was buried in a grave, and you're saying he rose again, and now he's ascended on high with the Father. You're telling me that that, putting faith in that, is what will reconcile me to God. Yeah. And that's the only way. That's, that's the only way. It must be done in him. And hopefully for those of us this morning who've been saved by the grace of God, we understand this. We understand that that's the only way that our guilt and our shame can ever be released, can ever be taken care of, is if we understand that he bore our guilt and shame on the cross for us in our place. It really is amazing to think of the work of God that he has done for us to be saved. But again, for some, it's too simple. For some, it doesn't make sense. But it's the message that we give. It's the only message that as Christians we have. In him, you can be saved. There's no other way. There's no other thing to do. Paul would continue on. So he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, what? We might become the righteousness of God. Not only are we declared free, but we're also declared righteous, holy, as I talked about already, clean, free, alive. Put those words in there. This is, the, this is what is promised to us as believers. Our shame and our guilt is gone, and what's thrown on us now is holiness, cleansing, freedom, life. This is the truth for us as believers. This is the truth for those who will believe. It's a truth that has remained for years and years and years. It is a story that doesn't change. And the good news as Christians is this is the message now that we get to carry into this world. We get to carry this to others, knowing this truth, right? We understand this. And the question really becomes, how then can we not be ambassadors for him? If this is true, if God really has done this through his son, if this is all true, how can we not be ambassadors for him? There's a quote that uh, John Calvin has. It's really small, but I, I know it, it really struck me as I was reading it. He said, so much the less excusable is our depravity if we do not, on meeting with such kindness, show ourselves teachable and compliant. I read that sentence and just pondered it for a very long time as I, as I read that. If we believe this truth, 
in this kindness and this love that God has shown us as Christians. How bad is our depravity and our sin if we do nothing but fall on our face before him and say, I am yours, and then go out and live a life of Romans chapter 12, sacrificially living for him each and every day. I don't know how we couldn't do that. But I also understand we all struggle with that as Christians. I do. You do. But that's why God gives us this time together to be reminded of the good news, to be reminded of the kindness that God has shown us, to be reminded of what God now is doing through us as ambassadors. The weight doesn't fall off my shoulders. It's very apparent to me each week that when I stand here to preach, I have to realize something. As I preach this gospel message, I do not do it on behalf of Monroe Missionary Baptist Church. I don't stand in this pulpit and preach on behalf of Tim or my family. But what God's word tells me is that as I stand here, look, I stand here preaching to you on behalf of Jesus himself. Begging you, begging you, be reconciled to God. Stop messing around. Stop waiting. For those of you this morning who you haven't been reconciled to God, you haven't put your trust in him. I'm doing my best this morning to beg you, to plead with you. Be reconciled to God. There is no other way to cure your guilt and your shame. There's no other way to justify yourself before God. There, there isn't. There's a lot of different ways people say, but those are all false. The only way is in him, by trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, believing that he died for you that day on the cross. And when he rose again, he conquered for you. I beg you, I implore you, be reconciled to God. If this morning you say, Pastor Tim, I've done that. God has done that in my life. Then I beg of you this, go beg others. Go plead with others. Go, go let your family members know the, the good news. Let your employers know the good news. The people that you come in contact with, as God gives you opportunity, beg and plead with them to be reconciled to God. I got to tell you, that, that's Monroe Missionary Baptist Church's strategy for church growth. It's our strategy for discipleship, for evangelism. It's you. It's this right here. It's the preaching of God's word. It's the people of God then going and being set out living their life faithfully as Christians. And as God gives you opportunity in your normal everyday life, as he gives you opportunity, plead with people, be reconciled to God. And to do that because the love of Christ constrains us to do that. That's our strategy. I have no others. I, I'm not a big fan of evangelism rallies. I'm not a big fan of all these different things, evangelism conferences, evangel all these different things. I, I don't really know what that means all the time. I don't always get it. And I don't really see it from scripture if I'm being honest with you. My evangelism rally is every Sunday morning. 
And my evangelism goal is if God allows it in a minute, I'm going to say, be dismissed. And you go do it. You live your life. And as God opens doors, you take the opportunity to share the gospel. But you live your life faithfully to him. And I'm trusting that God's word is true, that he then will do his part and he will do his work in the hearts of people, of those he has chosen to be ambassadors in this land. It's a big task that we have, but it's a, it's a great task. And so I want to encourage us again as believers to be faithful to that task. And I want to say one last time, for those of you who maybe you haven't been reconciled to God, I would say now is the time. Look at, look at, look, look I'm going to end with this. Chapter six, verse one and two. You said you promised only chapter five. I know. Working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now is the time. Now is the day. There's no need to wait. There's no need to push it off. There's nothing holding you back from saying, Christ, I believe in what you have done for me and by faith, I believe. I would urge you, don't say tomorrow's the favorable time because we're not promised tomorrow. We're not promised any other second. And so if you haven't been reconciled to God, be reconciled to God this morning. I hope that by faith you'll trust in him. Let's bow and let's pray. God, I thank you for, again, the truth of this passage and your word. God, I do pray for those here this morning who are still enemies of God. God, I pray that you've opened their ears to your truth, that they've seen it in Scripture. And God, I pray that you would work in their heart. I don't know who it might be. I know a lot of people today, when they're younger, say, well, when I'm older, when I have kids, then I'll start to think this stuff through. There are others who have different excuses. God, I pray that today you would push those excuses out of their hearts, out of their minds, and that they would see that your word is true. And what is said there in chapter 6, verse 2, that now is the favorable time. God, I pray that by faith they would hold on to those promises. You'd save them by your grace, make them a new creation. The old is past, the new has come. God, that could be happening right now in the hearts of people. God, for those of us who have been saved, I ask that you would help us in our walk with you to understand that this really isn't our home. When you save us, you make us part of your kingdom. We become part of your family. So God, I pray that we would see that and we'd understand that and that we would carry with us the weight of, of honoring you and serving you, but understanding it's not a, a weight like a burden. God, it's true freedom that the shackles of sin are gone and we get to serve the one who's given everything for us. And God, I pray that that love for you is what, and your love for us would just constrain us and compel us to be faithful in our lives. Yes, in, in sharing the gospel, but also just in being faithful Christians, being good husbands or wives or good children to our parents, being good parents, being loving neighbors, being good employees or employers, to just be good, faithful people, honoring your word. And as you give opportunity, 
to share this good news with other people. And God, I pray that you would, we would then see you working in the lives of people. We'd see your work being done. That we'd see family members coming to know you, being saved by your grace. Coworkers, friends, whatever it may be. But God, even if we don't see that right away, to understand that we still need to be faithful to you. That you love us so much that you would allow your son to pay our price. And so God, help us to be reminded daily of that love that you've shown us and that that would propel us to serve you honorably and faithfully. God, as we sing this last song now, I pray that it'd be worship to you. Help us in our lives to respond to your word how we should during this time. Because God, I know that your word works. It impacts the heart. It says it's sharper than a sword, that it cuts down between bow and bone and marrow. So I pray that that would be happening now in all of our lives as we search the depths of your word. God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you again in Christ's name. Amen. You have been listening to a message by Pastor Tim from Together in Christ. This content has been provided to you by Monroe Missionary Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at mmbconline.org.